BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. I am recording this intro from outside of the city, and so you might hear some lovely birds just for the next few minutes. Though I did interview my guest today, Gina Chung, the author of the breakout novel Sea Change, in New York City on a very hot and sticky day. Now, her novel Sea Change is about Ro, who works at an aquarium where she takes care of Dolores, a giant Pacific octopus who soon becomes, you know, her one and only best friend. Now, Ro's going through a lot. Her boyfriend has just broken up with her, and not because he doesn't love her, but because he's leaving the planet to go on a mission to Mars. So a lot is going on in Ro's life, and it's all poured into this book. Now, Gina and I have such a great conversation. We talk about professional mourners, of all things, recipes for the cocktail that's featured in her book, A Shark Teeny, and she will share that. We also talk about something that called these thin places on the planet, places where people feel that supernatural phenomena are more likely to happen. I'm intrigued by these places and want to visit as many as I can. We also talk about how shitty breakups are, but also how powerful that time can be in terms of making decisions when you're really unhinged. Sometimes they're not all bad decisions. I hope you love this conversation. Enjoy. Rolling, we're rolling. Amazing. Um, hello, Gina. Welcome to Lit Up. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, it's a sweltering, well, it's probably one of the first sweltering days in New York, and it makes me want to go to an aquarium. Yeah, aquariums are great hot weather places for sure. You feel like you just step into a whole other world when you walk in. Well, obviously that question relates to your novel, your debut novel that has really captured so many people's attention and congratulations. It's called Sea Change and it's about an octopus, Dolores, but more so it's about Ro, our kind of uh, vulnerable, strong, fabulous protagonist. I have to tell you, you know, there's this thing everyone talks about, about you know, you're not meant to like, they don't have to be a likable character. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, as soon as I started reading, I knew I would like the person that wrote this book. Oh, oh my gosh. Thank you. That means so much to me to hear. I totally agree that we don't have to like, like the characters in the books that we read in order to connect to the story. But it always makes me happy when people are like, oh, I actually really liked Rogue. So I'm like, yes, I really liked her too. You know, as a writer, you hope that people do connect with your characters on a certain level. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I don't read kind of other books and even think about the writer, but something in this made me think about the mind from like whence this book came from. And I think it was when you used a word, like you used jaunty in (laughs) describing, I think it was Dolores the Octopus. I can't remember. I was just trying to find it. And I thought, yes, okay. The way (laughs) she used words is fabulous. But I want to ask you first off, I had assumed that you were a budding marine biologist. There's so much information about octopi in this that feels so kind of fluid and unforced and then I read that no but can you tell us a bit about why an octopus? Yeah definitely one I'm very flattered that you thought I had a background in marine biology because I definitely don't although in an alternate you know universe if I had been any good at maths and sciences that might have been a career path possibility just because I find sea creatures really fascinating but yeah why an octopus? It actually just started with for me the image of an octopus so I started with the first line of the book which was this morning Dolores was blue And it came out of a writing prompt that I was assigned in a class that I was taking in my MFA program at the time a couple years ago. And I love writing about animals. And so I just started writing this line and I was like, well, who is Dolores? And I just decided she's an octopus. And I knew not really too much about octopuses at that point beyond the basics. And I knew that they change color as both like an evolutionary response and like a sort of expressive thing that they do. And so I was just really fascinated by the idea of a creature that has the power to sort of change into these otherworldly colors at will and kind of went from there. And when I started wondering about who the voice was, like who it is that's telling us about this octopus, it occurred to me like, oh, it's this person who works in an aquarium and she's going through some kind of unusual things while also going through sort of the ups and downs and typical losses of a person's life. And that's kind of how the world of sea change came to life for me. It just started with the octopus, actually. Did you intend for her to be so big? I did, yeah. So I knew that giant Pacific octopuses, are they are the biggest type of octopus out there and they are a real species. But if you ever go see one, they're not actually all that big. And so... I wanted to make Dolores kind of even larger than life. And that was sort of how the speculative parts of the book entered into it for me. I decided she was going to be from this zone of the ocean that I made up called the Bering Vortex, where because of climate change and pollution over the many years, the creatures of this zone have just become, have sort of mutated in response to that. So I liked the idea of having this creature who is not doing anything that octopuses can't do in real life, but is, is just heightened in a way as well. Well, I love too that this vortex, this place, A, I assumed it must exist in a way because we've all seen those images of the trash, uh, apparently the size of states in the ocean. But something I loved about the vortex is how you describe it as being a thin place. Mm. Can you 
talk more about that because I kind of want to go find these thin places and see what happens there. Yeah. So I'm not sure where I first heard the phrase thin places, but it's apparently a term. I believe it comes from Ireland and it's used to describe places that are a little bit otherworldly where it kind of feels like you know, maybe you're, maybe the membrane of our world feels a little bit thinner and we're touching on either an other dimension or maybe a spiritual realm that's out there. I don't know too much about the lore of thin places, but I feel like most people, if you mention this concept to them, they're like, oh yeah, I, I, I either know something like that or I've been somewhere like that. And I love the idea of liminal spaces in general. Like I think as a child, I was always drawn to them, places that are sort of in between. And the idea of a zone that sort of feels between worlds is especially fascinating to me. I think, I don't know, I think it appeals to the part of all of us that hopes for a kind of like sort of secret portal to another dimension. And maybe, you know, if you want to think about like multiverses, for example, if you've gone through loss in this life, maybe there's a chance that whatever you've gone through hasn't happened on that other side of things. That was something I wanted to play with a little bit in the book as well. Well, I re-watched Contact very recently and I was thinking of the wormholes that are in that film when I was reading your book. Have you been to thin places or places that you've felt had that aura or a sense about them? I don't know that I've ever, so I'll I'll just say I've never had any kind of paranormal experience, very sadly for me. Like I am that person who always wants to like go do haunted house tours and stuff like that. And my friends are like, dear God, no. But I'm always sort of like hoping and looking for proof that, you know, we are not alone in whatever sense of the, the phrase that might mean for different people. I will say though, I have always as a child, as I mentioned, always been drawn to sort of like in between places. And I have a younger sister who's about nine years younger than me. And so for a while, when I was growing up, I was an only child. And so I was kind of left to my own devices a lot of the time and would just explore in the neighborhood and in the parks of where I grew up in suburban New Jersey. And there was a part of the park that I really loved that was sort of off of the main kind of bike and jogging path. And, you know, looking back, it it probably wasn't even that like woodsy at all. It was like, you know, maybe a 10 to 20 feet strip of just trees. But to me as a child, it felt like a whole jungle of exploration and possibility. And like, I would sometimes sneak in there, even though I wasn't supposed to. My parents had specifically said like, stay on the main path if you're going to be in the park. But I loved the feeling of being hidden in some way and being part of, you know, the ecosystem of this park, this public park that I would go to, but sort of outside of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely those places, apparently off the island of Ibiza or Ibiza, however one is meant to say it, there's a place called Ivedra where apparently in the ancient Greek myths, it's where the underworld began. Oh, wow. Like it's the actual physical place Mm -hmm. that they imagined the entrance to the underworld. Wow. And it's in the ocean, actually, I think by kind of an outcrop of kind of uninhabited rocks. And Mm -hmm. I've always just been captured by that, like this place in the deep ocean where that you could enter. And I guess there's a a kind of an energy people talk about, about that island. I love that. I'm going to have to check that out if I'm ever in that area. (laughs) I know, I know. I want to, I want to as well. Um, When I finished the novel and we don't want to give anything away, it really felt like it was about friendship, but also a mother-daughter mm-hmm. reckoning and healing in a, in a way. 
why was that so important to explore and was it something that you started out thinking about? Yeah, I think as a writer, I'm always fascinated by human relationships and sort of how they change and how we ourselves change as, you know, time goes on and things things happen and as they do in the course of any ordinary life. And for Ro, I, I wanted her, I knew with the outset of writing the book that she was going to sort of be in this place of heartbreak and loss because um, at the start of the novel, we learned that her boyfriend has broken up with her and he's not just leaving her, he's leaving the planet to join this privately funded mission to colonize Mars. But she's also, you know, it's one of those losses that sort of is the catalyst for her to grapple with a lot of other losses in her life, some of which are more sort of ongoing than others. And one of them is that her relationship with her best friend, Yunhi, who works with her at the aquarium and who she's known since childhood, like that relationship is changing. And that happens a lot, I think, especially when you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're kind of coming of age as a young adult and you start to feel like, you know, maybe you and your closest friends are on different pathways in life. And sometimes the friendship weathers those those bumps and sometimes it doesn't. And I really wanted to explore that with these two characters, with Yunhee and with Ro, and how different they are, but also how they try to make space for one another. And then eventually, you know, do have to sort of come to terms with what all these changes have meant for their their friendship. And then with regards to Ro's mother, yeah, that relationship was one that I knew would have to be a main focus in the book, just because, I mean, mother-daughter relationships, as we know, are very complex. And, you know, some people are lucky enough to enjoy relationships with the mothers that are feel very, you know, simple, actually, in terms of like, you know, they, they feel very close to one another. Conflicts, if they do happen, are, ver- are fairly quickly resolved. But I think for a lot of people, it's hard to sort of navigate that relationship, especially as you get older and maybe take pathways that your mother didn't or couldn't at, at her age. And with Rose's mother, I also really wanted to make sure that she was portrayed in as full of a way as possible. She's not the, you know, the main character of the story, but I didn't want to make her out to be like a sort of stereotypical immigrant Asian mother of the kind that we're used to seeing in a lot of mainstream media. I wanted the reader to have a sense of the fact that she had had a whole life and and plans before she became married and had a child. And that in some ways, because of the circumstances of her time, she feels like she was limited in some ways by the expectations put on her as a result of taking on those roles. And I also wanted to explore how a daughter like Roe would grow up with, you know, this understanding of what her mother had been through and how that would impact her own decisions as a young adult coming of age. It's always so interesting, the timing that we all start to like put the pieces, the puzzle pieces together of our parents' lives before us. And I think some children are privy to that far earlier. Even just now, my therapist <laughs> said, you know, she goes, well, how does that change what you think about how your mom dealt with certain situations? Mm-hmm. And to be 42 and to have a revelation about that, was so incredible and it just reminded me of that there's always so much more to learn about them and I really felt reading this so much love but also sometimes so much is being said in what isn't able to be said and it was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. 
Now, was choosing Mars, you know, it's it's so funny, isn't it? Because I think Rose, like, it's not, you know, having my boyfriend break up with me because he's leaving the planet isn't really like being broken up with because he doesn't love her anymore. And it's mm-hmm. obvious that he does, but he's compelled to explore and for his own reasons. That feels so close to our reality in a way. Yeah. Is that speculative part something that you've always wanted to explore in your writing or was it just kind of a leap that happened naturally? I do love writing in the speculative mode. I wouldn't say all of my work is in that realm, but whenever it enters in, it sort of does feel natural and organic where I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming, but now I kind of, I like it and I like what it's doing to the relationships and to the characters. The decision to have Tay be leaving to join this mission, it kind of entered just through the flow of me writing this story where, you know, I wanted her to sort of be in the throes of a breakup because I love a breakup story. I just find it really fascinating and cathartic to write about. And then I just decided because I thought, you know, we already have some near future elements in this story. Why not have it be so that he's actually leaving the planet to go do this, you know, potentially multi-years, potentially lifetime long thing. And it's funny because when I decided to include that in the story, I remember polling some friends and being like, hey, if you had the opportunity to do this, like, you know, knowing that you might not ever see some friends and family ever again on the earth, would you do it? I was surprised by the number of people who told me yes. And I was like, really? Because I totally don't. I'm not like really a, a intrepid explorer at heart. And I kind of I can't imagine, you know, being the kind of person who'd be willing to do something like that. But at the same time, we do need those people. They're they're doing important work. And so, but I always wonder with someone like that, and it, it doesn't have to be, you know, leaving the planet either for someone who chooses to undertake some big life change that involves uprooting their life. I always wonder what happens to the people that get left behind too in the wake of that. Well, it made me think of myself, I left Australia. It's as far as you can go. Mm -hmm. And you do leave people behind. But back to breakups. As a person who goes through a breakup, that's almost a thin place, isn't Mm. it? Like in your psyche. Yeah. We're so thin in terms of what we can kind of handle. It's such a moment of, of change or potential change because I think you know, don't they say you shouldn't make, you know, wait however many months before you make big decisions mm. after a breakup, like leaving to move somewhere else. But maybe it's a good thing to make rash decisions. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of like, you know, a major change like a, or upheaval, like a breakup throwing you into kind of your own version of a thin place. I've definitely felt that when I've gone through breakups where, you know, obviously it's not pleasant. It's, you know, you're sad, you're crying all the time. Maybe you're really angry about things that happen or that you're processing. But also there's a kind of like powerfulness that I feel like I tap into in those moments where it's like, I can be anything and go anywhere. I mean, it's like this weird idea of like possibility all of a sudden. And you're almost like feral with grief but on, and so vulnerable. But there's a weird kind of strength and, and catharsis in that as well, which I find really interesting to read about in a lot of breakup stories. You're definitely adrenalized. Yeah. Just really living close to the edge. You're so fully a human, but kind of bonkers. Yeah. I'm glad I haven't <laughs> been there in a while. So, but it's kind of t- I'm tapping back into that. I'm like, oh God. Yeah. It's like you're suddenly becoming the most distilled raw version of you. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> Completely. And like slightly unhinged, like you described when 
Rose dad has two beers, you know, like you get that kind of glossy eyed look. Yes. Yeah. And like, you know, if you're lucky, you have people around you who can like be support systems and cushions for you in that way. But, um, yeah, there's, there is a certain kind of, I don't know, you feel a little bit drunk with power, (laughs) but also so powerless at the same time, because, you know, no one likes to go through a breakup if they can help it. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's also a good device in fiction. Yes. It's, or storytelling, isn't it? Because we like drama and we like the unpredictable to happen. We don't want a story that's plodding along normal life. Yeah. And I think there's something about a character who's going through heartbreak that is like, I don't know, whenever I read a story where someone is going through it in that way, I just feel for them, you know, no matter how they're processing it. I'm like, oh yeah, I mean, we've been there. We've all been there in some way. And I think it's also a way to build intimacy with the reader and a kind of trust because you're seeing this person at essentially like their lowest. That's a really good point, actually. Like her drinking which is obviously a problem to an extent. What's her cocktail? The shark teeny? The shark teeny, yes. (laughs) Yep. It made me want one so badly. (laughs) They're not bad. I'm very, I'm very pleased to say they're not terrible. Can you share the recipe? Yes. So basically, I mean, the ratios are, you know, up to the individual, but I, I would recommend doing like two parts gin to one part Mountain Dew. And then I say in the book, it's like a hint of jalapeno. So you can do it as like a garnish or you can chop it up into slices and put it in the drink so that your drink gets infused. And actually the jalapeno adds a nice little like refreshing kick, I find, to the cocktail. So that's my unofficial official recipe for the shark I love it because I can definitely tell from that description that you drink these a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't even try the shark on my own until my publisher they held a media lunch for the book in the lead up to publication. And they were like, we'd love to make the Sharktini the signature drink for this lunch. And I was like, that's so cool. And also now I'm terrified because what if everyone hates it? And so they asked if I had a recipe for it. And I just kind of developed one in my kitchen. And thankfully it was not horrible. Delicious. So yeah. <laughs> Your next gig, a mixologist. <gasps> uh, I would love to make like literary cocktails. That's like a secret dream gig of mine. <laughs> It's obvious that you are intrigued by the natural world and just write about it with such clarity and precision. You grew up in New Jersey and we know that you enjoyed the park. But now that you live in Brooklyn, where and how do you get that grounding from nature or tell us about just how you keep it in your life? Yeah, I so I don't live too far from Prospect Park in Brooklyn and I try to get outside whenever I can. And I actually, when I was writing the book, I lived like five minutes from the park. So very close. It was basically, I treated it like my backyard essentially. And I would just um, go out there all the time, especially because I was writing the bulk of the book in 2020 when really the only social life I had was going to the park and like looking at ducks and squirrels and the trees and occasionally meeting up with friends in the park for walks. And I just found it very, very grounding. And before that had happened, I had gone into the park a little bit, but, you know, nothing like what I was doing. I was going in there multiple times a day just because it was the only outlet I had. But I did find it very peaceful and very grounding. And I love that in New York, you know, in the midst of one of the busiest, most bustling cities in the world, you can find little pockets of greenery like that. Also just, it helps me stay in my body more too, which is important for me as a writer because I tend to be all up in my head most of the time for 
both my day job and for writing. And it helps me to remind myself that like, you know, and bringing it back to, to animals in the natural world, writing about those things and experiencing outside whenever I can reminds me that like, I am also an animal and that we are all also animals and that we need to take, tend to our bodies the same way that we tend to our minds and our consciousnesses. It's so interesting because I've been going to the park a lot too, like we all do. And because I want to get a dog, I look at every dog there is. And it's been such a fun thing to kind of notice these creatures, these animals that are all around us. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes you're a busy New Yorker and someone's got a dog on a leash and they're totally in your way and you're going to trip over yourself with the leash. Sometimes your impulse is like, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. And then because I'm so in tune with all the dogs now, I'm like, oh no, that dog should have right of way. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a creature. It has every right to be on this planet like I do. Mm-hmm. Like, please go ahead, you know, mm-hmm. Fluffy. It's just been a good, like, re jiggering of like hierarchies I guess that's kind of a Buddhist philosophy is that everyone every creature is meant to be as important as the next but something about animals and then it was really nice to read your book and just see that Ro has this connection and that she's kind of inherited as well Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something she inherited a bit from her father who was a marine biologist and would take her to the aquarium and sort of was always encouraging her to look at the world and to pay attention to what's happening and to the creatures in the world. And there's a moment in the book where he kind of explains to her that that's actually one of the most important parts of the job of being a marine biologist or someone who takes care of animals is to pay attention to them. And I think that's true for all of us, actually, even if we don't necessarily work with animals or research them. It's it's when you do start to pay attention to those things, like you mentioned, like, you know, noticing dogs on your like walks in the park, it actually changes your relationship to the world in a really big way and, and to time too. Like speaking of the park lately, I've been taking like a sort of different route and there's a little swan family that I've noticed in that little, like, I don't know what to call it, like a pond or a lake in the middle of prospect park. And I've become very attached to them. I'm just like, you know, I've seen the babies growing up and it's really nice to see like life happening in such a different pace in such a different world that's parallel to our own world. So yeah, I love, I love noticing things like that. Yeah. I'm just thinking, what have you inherited from your own parents? Do you think? Mm, That's such a great question. I think that definitely a love, my love of stories comes from them. It's funny because my mother is actually the bigger reader than my father is in terms of like reading fiction and novels and stories. But my dad was actually the one who would tell me stories at, at, at bedtime and I would always ask for whenever he was like, okay, like, do you want me to read you a book or do you want me to tell you a story? I would always ask him to tell me a story. And he would come up with like these very original sort of fantastical stories just out of the blue. And he's like an accounting professor and like an amateur historian. Like he's not someone who necessarily like is steeped in the world of fiction. But I, I think that was my first sort of exposure to the idea of like being able to make up stories on the spot. And with my mother, because she reads so much, I think I just inherited that love of reading from her as well. And she would often tell me about books that she'd read at my age, often in Korean translation. And then I would find the English versions and read them. And it was such a great thing to be able to connect with her on that level as well. And as a child, I think the other thing I was really hungry for whenever my parents brought it up was stories of their own childhoods. Mm -hmm. I think earlier we were talking about 
learning to see our parents as human beings. And as a child, you know, when you're a kid, you have such a limited understanding of your parents, right? Like they are your caretaker and your guardian. And that's kind of all you can see them as. But I loved hearing about what they were like as kids because it made them feel human in a completely different way to me. One of my favorite lines in the book, and this is, it's such a simple one, so it's not at all a testament to, you know, your writing is so beautiful, but it's something that Hallie says, Mm. Rose Cousin, and it's as simple as, do you want advice or do you want to vent? Oh, (laughs) yeah. You know, Row, obviously, you know, there's drama going on. And it just made me think of like a great friend or someone who really understands you. You know, so often where we want to, our instinct is to help fix that person's problem right away. And actually, they don't want that. Mm. And this was such a clear, just words connected that I was like, oh, that says everything. Would that line have come from someone in your life? I think, you know, it's funny. I probably had someone say that to me because I am that friend who is always full of advice, helpful or no, about any woman's problem. But it's something that I think someone like mentioned it to me, not as a criticism at me, but like a thing that they'd heard somewhere. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a beautiful way of reframing conversations around problems or conflicts that we're having. And so it's something that I use, that I try to keep in mind in, in my relationships now where you know, if someone's telling you about this problem they have, yeah, because you care about that person, your instinct is generally to want to jump in and help them fix it or address it. But most of the time, I feel like people don't want that. As you were saying, they just want to be heard and validated. And that is something that I'm lucky. I'm very lucky to have friends who help me feel that way and are also available to like help me brainstorm practical solutions if that's something I want. But most of the time I do think in friendships, what people most want is just to be seen and to be accepted in all their weird complications and, and, you know, through the ups and downs of whatever it is that they're going through. So yeah, it's definitely something that's served me like, well, I think whenever I remember to practice it. Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes even hearing someone say your words back to you is kind of all you need. Yeah. You know, and someone's like, is, is that what you, you, you mean, is that what's going on? Well, this is reminding me of something that's come up before on the podcast and I have to find out specifically who these women were and what they were called. But apparently in the 70s in Italy, there was a group of women who would write about their own experiences. But this process was then that the another woman within the group would read their situation back to them or back to the group and it was a way for the the woman who'd written about her own I think usually quite traumatic experiences it was a way to heal and actually hear their own stories Mm. back that's beautiful I love that I feel like I, I don't know I feel emotional just thinking about that concept it also makes me think of like And this is like a very ancient, right, going back through many customs and cultures, but like the idea of professional mourners, like people who come to a funeral and wail and cry in order to sort of like, I don't know, it's like... Jumpstart. Yeah, yeah. And because so much of the time, grief doesn't look how we might picture it, you know? Sometimes you're just numb in the wake of profound loss and grief, but having a mourner whose job it is to sort of mirror these emotions, like that that probably feels very cathartic in a lot of ways. Definitely. Now, is that something specific to the Korean 
experience of mourning? I actually don't know. Yeah, it might be, but I I feel like I've seen it, excuse me, I feel like I've seen it in lots of different movies depicting like funeral customs. I feel like it's a thing in a lot of different places. Mm. Yeah. Talking about people on, in their thin place, the fact that the mourner isn't necessarily in that kind of vulnerable place if they're doing their job, Mm. but everyone around them is kind of feels like their chaos ensues. Yeah. It's almost like they're providing a container in that moment for the people who are going through the loss. I mean, for them, it's probably just a job, but yeah, I'd be curious to know if like they feel those feelings too, as they're being a container. Like it almost makes me think of like when actors talk about being on set for a really grueling project and how draining that can be, even if they're not the ones going through the events in the script, but yeah, I think it just says so much about how, as we as humans need one another to sort of guide each other through these moments in life okay this is like one of those prompts when you know they show you the the inky images and it's like what do you just say whatever comes up but what lights you up oh oh my gosh that's a great question okay I think this is a thing that has been on my mind a lot lately just moving through New York City and navigating what life looks like right now in spring, summer 2023. But I feel like we've seen so many like cruelties and difficult, terrible things in the last couple of years. Not to say that those things haven't been happening prior to like 2020, but it just feels like the world has been going through a lot of grief and heaviness and violence and continues to. And so the thing that really lights me up is seeing moments that jolt me out of that feeling And that can just be like small everyday acts of kindness between strangers. Like if someone on the subway like gives up their seat for someone else without having to be asked to, it like moves me to tears. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm getting older and more cynical maybe, but I feel, I love little reminders like that, that there, that there is kindness and care among our fellow human beings. And I think it's nice to be reminded of those things, especially in a place like New York city where there's just so many people at all times of the day. So yeah, those are the things that kind of light me up a little bit throughout the day. I was on the subway last night and, you know, a bit grumpy because no one was moving into the middle. And Mm. I kind of was that person who was like, we can move in, like, come on everyone, because no one talks on the subway like that. And then, you know, we all jammed in and it was the, there's a Yankees and Mets game on and the subways were completely screwed up. So everyone was hot and sweaty. But I couldn't turn around, but I could just hear a fabulous conversation going on behind me of two people squished next to each other, Mm -hmm. British tourists and, you know, a Yankees fan. Mm -hmm. She was explaining how her mother had passed away and left her money and they were going on the trip of a lifetime. And then the guy going to the Met. The, the, the Yankee game was like a larger than life New York character. <laughs> who was I can just, like hear his, their voice oh, in my head he, right now. He, whose voice <laughs> took up the whole carriage. But it was, he had such a, a warmth and, you know, he's like, where have you had the best pizza? Like, where are you going? Like oh my just God. all the tips and I wanted to write them down. So that just reminded me of like, it was such a good moment because I was such a grouch going on. Mm-hmm. You know, just a a nasty New York vibe. (laughs) And then I was like totally changed by it. 
Yeah, and it's all around us, honestly. I think that's one of the the joys of this of being in a city like this. It's like there could in a subway car, for example, you could have a couple fighting, you could have a child wailing, and then you could have someone in the corner like talking to their friend and like having a really uplifting, joyful conversation. It's just like the tapestry of human life is all around us at all times here in the city. <laughs> well, that is such a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a joy. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.